welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, we are so grateful for your word. You have shown us the path that leads to life. You have shown us your ways that we might be blessed and walk in them. You've shown us your promises that we might have hope burn in our hearts. We pray today that you would open our spiritual ears. We've come to hear the word, to hear your voice. We, we want to hear from you, not me. And we ask, Lord, that our eyes be opened and we see you and we see our, we see our Lord Jesus high and lifted up. We see him full of glory. Lord, build us up today. Make us strong. We live, in, we live in a troubled world. But Lord, you are strong and you want us full of boldness and full of joy. As we study the Holy Spirit, may we walk more deeply, each one of us, in the power and the life of the Holy Spirit. We believe for that. We ask you for that gift and know we pray according to your will. So we have the petition which we ask of you. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. We are in a series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, why are we doing this? Um, not, well, it's certainly a good topic, but that's not it. Um, we've been in it since uh, in the end of spring. I, I don't remember when I, when I switched over. And right now we're going through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And today, if you want to turn your Bible, we're going to go to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians We've talked about who is the Holy Spirit, what are the promises of the Holy Spirit. We've seen those. The, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, and now we're going through this section of 1 Corinthians. Why? Because this is the one place in the Bible which really talks about the New Testament church. What did they do when they gathered? What was this spirit-filled church look like? And uh, they're, they're, they, were, they were a Pentecostal bunch, people. And um, so we're looking at that and we're learning from that and so that we too can walk in uh, all that God has for us. As I've been doing this study, I, I just really came to a realization. I, I use a lot of old books. I have some new ones too, but uh, a lot of the new ones, uh, people are lazy today. They don't want to do the homework. So they kind of give you your comments. They condense their sermons and stick them in a book or have some writer do it for them. But in the old days, they actually did their homework. They knew Greek. They knew Hebrew. They, 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 didn't, they, they would do their work. So I've got old books, but I, uh, and I, what I've found is, for the last 150 years, easily, people have been teaching the Christian community not to believe what the Bible says in this matter. I mean, not accidentally. I'm not saying we made a few slips. You, you get into this section in, in Corinthians, and you'll, you'll find one book after another will say things like this. They'll say, now, now this, you'll see these things, but they're not for today. So the commentator, who's supposed to just tell you what it says, is, is just front-loading it right off the front. I, I, saw, I saw one, and I, was, I knew this was there, but it just ticks me off when I read it. <laughs> they literally say, because it's, they're embarrassed by the fact that Paul was clearly openly Pentecostal, and so they, 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 here's what they do with it. They, they said he went through stages of evolution. They don't use that word, but that's what they're talking about. They said he had an early stage uh, that was in their minds, uh, First and Second Thessalonians. Well, that was the first books. Uh, so and they said, here he is, um, uh, he's sort of for it and sort of not. And then he has a middle stage, and that's this First Corinthians and other th that he was in. And there, there he's disciplining the church, telling him, calm down, calm down. Don't be so Pentecostal. And then he has a final stage. Ah, that's his, he's evolved to the high level in which he, he finally just says, hey, the Holy Spirit is just there to bring us together as a church. What a ridiculous nonsense. And how do you like that for a theology of Scripture? The Apostle Paul is growing up in front of our eyes. And what he wrote at first was immature and foolish. And he only got it at the end. Oh, that's, a, that's blasphemy in my opinion. Last time I checked, the whole book is the Word of God. Amen. And God superintended over the writing of every word of it. Amen. To say stuff like that. They would never say it on anything else, but they will say it about the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm bringing this up, not just to make you mad. Hope you're, hope you're mad. <laughs> but to warn you, 
Why are we talking about the Holy Spirit? Because we have got to go back to the word and recapture what was taken from us. Because the church in this day, as, as the last days draw near, as things are coming the way they are, as darkness rises up, as, as actually demonic stuff rises up, for the church of Jesus Christ to be stripped of its power, not know how to move in the Spirit, not know how to hear the Spirit, to, not be, to understand even the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to have all of that gone from us and sort of plod along, uh, we're, we're toast. We're just toast. And you can see it. Someone just told at our conference, just said, 80% of the evangelical churches in America are in, in decline. The church is not growing in America. It's dying. You need to know that. This is a serious moment. And it's not because this gospel doesn't work. People who come to the Lord, in my opinion, as easily as they ever have. It's that it's been lost and, and, the, and, and the, the boldness to preach it. We've taken, we've taken repentance out of it. We've, we've stripped the whole idea of the judgment of God, which is their people. I mean, I'll either lie to you or not. God is not just a gushy fool in heaven. There is a judgment, and you will stand in front of him, and you will answer for him. He's going to do that. It's as clear as anything in the book. And no one talks about it more than you know who? Jesus. So I think let's tell the truth. Let's tell it kindly, lovingly, without self-righteousness. And then let's the power of the truth change people. Amen? Well, that's why we're doing this, the, the subject of the Holy Spirit. Lord, open the word to us. Here we are. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll start at verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 7. I'll stop at 7 because I, I'm going to take up the, the latter part uh, next time. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, notice what he says, I am nothing. Doesn't say and his knowledge was wrong, doesn't say even the, the, those gifts weren't, weren't, weren't genuine. It says, in God's economy, in God's eyes, I have advanced not at all. I have nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, if I do it for the wrong reasons, it profits me nothing. I may have profited others something, but it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. I will explain these things later. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then I'll stop right there. Let's turn to our text. I want to talk about the Spirit's assignment. The most important role of the Holy Spirit, the primary reason the Father sent him to us through the Son, is to make us holy, not to make us powerful. Did you hear that? Why, let me just say that. that. That fact, that role of the Holy Spirit, that he's actually there to refine us and and, and make us holy and, and, and cause the image of Christ to be formed in us, that's almost lost. When you talk to anybody about the Holy Spirit, when you read anything about it, it's always he's the, he brings gifts. He's the, he enables us for ministry. He's sort of a vague thing. His number one assignment, his number one assignment is to make you and me like Jesus in our character, to, to work in our heart until we're like him. Almost always when people talk about the coming of the Spirit, they say he's come to equip us for service. In their minds, he's basically the giver of all gifts. He's the one who empowers us to do ministry more effectively. And that's true. He is the giver of all gifts. But that's not his most important role. Others say he's a great teacher. His assignment is to lead us into all truth, which in their minds means he will help us understand biblical passages that speak about Jesus. 
And that's also true. He is the spirit of truth who teaches us all things and brings to remembrance all that Jesus said. But giving us knowledge isn't his most important assignment either. Not if we believe what Paul says in this portion of his letter to the Corinthians. Paul says the most important thing in our lives isn't power and it isn't knowledge. It isn't deeds of any kind, not even deeds of great generosity or courage. It's having our heart changed to become like Jesus' heart. So let's say it again. The most important role of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. Would you say that? The most important role of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. Which is another way of saying to make us like Jesus. And above all else, that means to love like he loves, or maybe it would be better to say to be filled with his love. Paul's description of love in in the passage we're reading today is a description of the character of God. Now let's, I close my Bible, but go back to 1 Corinthians 13. If this is a description of God's love, remember how John said God is love, all right? If this is a description of God's character, then we can take that word love and we can read, we can read his name into it. So, so this describes God. God is patient. God is kind. God is not jealous. God, God does not brag. Now you think, well, wait a minute. He says all kinds of things that he's glorious and powerful. Somebody said uh, one time as an athlete, he said, if, 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 it, you know, if, it's, if it's true, it ain't bragging. what's he going to say he did make the place you know and it is God is not arrogant isn't that lovely Look look at the person that begins to emerge it's not the picture that we so often paint you know we have massive cathedrals and and this whole picture of God you know and you have this wonderful person emerge God does not act unbecomingly I'll explain that later it does not God does not seek his own Wow. He's not provoked. He does not take into account a wrong suffered. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Look at that. But rejoices with the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Wow. When the Apostle John writes, God is love, he's telling us that everything God does is ultimately an expression of his love. Love is why he made us. Love is why he sent his son to save us. Love is why he disciplines us. And love is even why he will someday judge the world in righteousness. From the foundation of the world, it has been the father's plan that we will become like his son. That doesn't mean that we will cease to have our own personalities. But it does mean that everything we do will be done because we love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. And our neighbor is ourself. That means that this list that Paul provides of the characteristics of love is a description of us. It's it's your true character and mine. And if not now, at least it is the character we will have when he's finished with us. You understand? So if you got 1 Corinthians 13, open it back up. And now this time we're going to put your name in it. I'll put mine in. It gets funny. All right. I'm going to put mine in, and I'll read it that way. Um, You just, as you're reading, you put yours in. So let's look at it again. Steve is patient. Wow. (laughs) We're, We're on our way, people. Steve is kind. Steve is not jealous. No. Steve does not brag ever. He is not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly. He does not seek his own. He's not provoked. Steve does not take into account a wrong suffered. Boy, is that true. It's true by faith, people. Steve does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Steve bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. That's my personality when God is done with me. And it is yours. That's what you and I look like when he's done with us. No options, no plan B, all of us. Hallelujah. What, what love does? 
It's enlightening to note that Paul describes love by what it does, not by the emotions someone might feel. Did you notice that? Every one of those is an action. It's not, he doesn't talk about love, it feels this. He talks about love does this. In these four verses, he lists 15 actions to which our decision to love others with God's kind of love will lead us. Here is a brief description of each. Now, we could easily take these four verses and these 15 qualities, and you could end up with 15 weeks of sermons, and they'd be great sermons. I mean, this is a, a fabulous uh, set of, 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 of topics. Uh, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to say, how does the Holy Spirit play in this? What is his role in this? So I'm going to give you just a brief definition of each. Here we go. Verse 4. The first thing love does is to suffer long. Would you say suffer long? This is the literal meaning of what is usually translated as love is patient. The, the Greek word makrothromia means to, 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 have, to slowly get angry. And, and what it means is you don't, your temper doesn't flare quickly. You, you, when you love somebody, uh, you'll put up with an awful lot of trouble before your temper flares. Your, your temper's held back when you love someone. A person with this kind of love is able to endure hardship or mistreatment while waiting for God to accomplish his purpose in the beloved. Do you have someone you're waiting for? Someone you love, someone you're, it's taken a long time. They may offend you. They may say all kinds of things. They may disappoint you and break your heart. Uh, the love in you keeps you from getting angry and walking out. It keeps you praying. It keeps you, it keeps you reaching out. It buys time. See, you got to buy, let God, God is not a, he doesn't do magic. He doesn't tap people on the head with a wand. He, it's organic. He, he draws them to, the, to a real decision, a free decision, one they make. But he leads them that way. He can't force it. So it takes time to win people. It buys time for God to do his work in a person or a situation. Next, love is kind. Would you say that? To be kind is to mercifully help someone in need. Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan is an illustration of kindness. A traveling Samaritan stopped to serve an injured man, caring for him in the practical ways he needed help. Remember, he washed his wounds with uh, oil, with wine first. It would have been sanitized and then oil to soothe it. He dressed his wounds, carried him to an inn even paid for his stay while he recuperated. Jesus uses this parable to explain what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. This type of practical service is what Paul meant when he says love is kind. Love doesn't just sit there. It gets up and does something to help. Let me just make a distinction. There's a, there's a word called empathy. Uh, you can empathize with somebody, meaning you feel with them, their emotions. So somebody's feeling bad, you go, ah, I feel bad too. You know, you can say, oh, I feel horrible about your condition. It's just awful. Oh. But you don't do anything. You're empathizing. Empathizing's passive. It's what happens inside of me. Kindness sees the need and does something about it. You see? It's, it's, so love is, uh, God's love is kind. Next, love is not jealous. Would you say that? People who act out of Christ-like love do so because they love God and want to let his love reach through them to others. Their attitude tends to honor others and bring peace. This is very different from those whose motivation is to prove that they are as good or better than someone else. See, the root word, uh, it's the same one that I talked to you about when, when it's, Paul said, well, it's translated as earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I said, well, the word really isn't earnestly desire. The word is, is from jealousy. Uh, and it's the same, this is the same word. And uh, it means to compete with somebody, vie with them, to, to run against them. And so Paul had said is you compete with each other for the greater gifts. Is what Paul actually said. So here we have it again. The word... It describes people who are competing with one another. And that kind of competition results in either winners or losers. And it produces either shame or pride. When I lose, I'm ashamed. When I win, I'm proud. It, it just bears no good fruit at all. Sec, uh, next, love does not brag. Would you say that? The word Paul uses pictures someone who parades. That's the root idea. To parade in front of some, everybody. 
Love doesn't do this. And, and I, I have, I, for years with preaching, you either get up in front of for people for two reasons. Either for communication or display. You either want to be looked at or you're there to communicate a message. There's only two reasons of getting up in front of a crowd of people. And Paul says love does not parade. It doesn't want to stand there and, and have the attention drawn to it. He's telling us that those who are motivated by love don't do things in order to draw attention to themselves. And they can't take credit for the good things God accomplishes through them. They, they don't. They acknowledge their absolute dependence on God and marvel at the fact that God would be willing to use someone like them. There's a humility in the heart of a, of a person full of love, acknowledging that it's God. Next, love is not arrogant. Would you say that? Paul literally says love is not puffed up. He pictures someone puffed out like a pair of billows uh, with their own self-importance. The word applies to a person who pushes themselves into positions of leadership to which they were not called by God. Much of this kind of striving for prominence was taking place in Corinth. He describes it there earlier. It showed that there were people whose hearts lacked the Christ-like love which regards others as more important than oneself. That's what Philippians 2 teaches us. A loving person seeks to serve. Listen, an arrogant person seeks to lead. I'm always suspicious when people say, well, I've been called uh, to lead leaders. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. You know. Because <laughs> that's what you're dealing with. I, I, I'll often say to them, I haven't. I'm just down with ragtag folks. Because... <laughs> Honestly, I think the kingdom of God is where the world and the church meet. That's where the kingdom action is. And when somebody's, when somebody's always wanting to climb up into leadership, um, there will be leaders. Absolutely. God puts people in leadership. Um, but honestly, you shouldn't want it. <laughs> the ones that want it, don't put them there. Okay. Verse 5. Next. Love does not act unbecomingly. Would you say that? A person who loves does not intentionally do or say, I didn't have that in there, but I should have, do or say things that might embarrass or offend others. See, the, the word euskemenos is, it's the Greek, uh, to, to function within the scheme, to function within the proper norm of things. And, and so you're euskemenos, doing it well, uh, doing it properly. A person who's, who's not, uh, doing that is, 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 is breaking social norms. There may be times when God asks us to minister in a way that might embarrass certain people, but that's not the kind of offense to which Paul is referring. I mean, you can think of evangelism and various things where you're just charging in and it's times it's awkward, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about individuals who selfishly ignore accepted patterns of behavior or dress because they don't care what others think. Next, love does not seek its own. Would you say that? Christ-like love is focused outward, away from self. You know, as children, I, I just think the human nature, we're all born focused on ourselves. It's just the way we are as humans. It's not wrong. It's just what it is. So our world is focused at us. But as we, in Christ, and, and some people never get out of that. I mean, it's, all, it's really a childish self-orientation that never goes away. They spend their entire life just focused on themselves. And it's, it's really sad. Uh, but Christianity takes us and focuses us outward. Um, John Wesley ca called it otherly. I love that word. You become, from self-orientation, you become otherly. Your eyes, your thought, your heart begins to look out around you at those around you. Christ-like love is focused outward. Paul's purpose is not to point us toward a life of self-neglect, but he's cautioning those for whose greedily pursue spiritual blessings for themselves, reminding them that God's will, God's love will always lead them toward a life of serving others. It, it just does. Some people, and you'll, you'll hear it, and frankly, this is the heart of religion around the world. The basic 
the basic transaction of religion is what do I have to do to make the gods give me what I need? And so if I, mean, if I think it's a force field, if I think it's the phoenix and the, and the dragon, or if I think it's, the, if I think it's Baal and the Starte, if I, if, regardless of what I think it is, what do I have to do? What do I sacrifice? What do I say? What do I chant? What do I, what do, I do to get that to give me what I want? That's the transaction of religion. And people are fine with that. Uh, Christ, and they bring it right, that attitude right into Christianity. What do I have to do to get Jesus to give me what I want? What do I, what do I say? What prayers do I pray? How do I have to behave? Do I tithe? Do I, what do I do to get the man upstairs to give me stuff I need here now? He is our provider. So there's an element of truth here. He is our source. But what he wants from us is our attitude turned the other way around. What he says, and I, I, I really believe this. I've heard people say, no, if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. I'm thinking, that, that's nuts. My, my understanding is if I'll, I think he said, if, if I will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that he will, what? Add to me everything I need. I really believe that deal. So that if you and I turn our hearts and say, Lord, what's our assignment? He's, he knows what you need. He knows you need money, he knows you need a car, he knows you need a house, he knows, he knows what you need, he knows that, and he will provide it. So you and I can literally take our eyes off of that, put them on the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And as I move forward, he will provide for me. I believe that works, I've lived it for 47 years, I th- I, I'm convinced of it. Next, Paul states that love is, oh, did I miss anything? Oh, no, no, neither. No, it's a good. Love is not provoked. Would you say that? The selfless focus of God's love protects people from a person from being easily angered and drawn into heated arguments. Preserving the relationship becomes more important than demanding one's rights or winning an argument. You get it? When, in other words, I'm determined to get you to Jesus. Nothing you can say will insult me. <laughs> You know, go ahead, be rude, be whatever. I'm getting you. There's a, there's a, there's a heart focus there. I had a, a great uncle, and he was really one of the most... most he, he offended everyone in the family. I mean, and, and, and he would take offense and withdraw from them. And, and so his, finally, the only person who, who would, he would talk to was my mother. And it's not like he didn't insult us too, but she refused. She wanted that man's soul. And she, you know, it's like, thank you, uncle. You know, she just would not let him drive her away. And she just kept, and she got him. And I mean, boy, he was a cantankerous guy. I mean, amazing. And at at the very end, he received the Lord. But, but, and what, this was love. You see it? refuses to be provoked. And you'll have family members who literally try to drive you off. We've had them. We've had them mail us stuff back. In fact, the person who did that right now, Mary's in communication with and winning them. She just refused to be offended. She just kept praying, kept loving, kept watching for opportunities. You understand? Love does that. Love, love, is, love is a tremendous force. Preserving the relation more, more important than, than demanding one's rights or winning an argument. Uh, love, this is, by the way, what Jesus means by turning the other cheek, going the second mile. You know, go ahead, slap me, insult me, whatever. I'm going after you. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Would you say that? The person who loves with Christ-like love does not keep a mental record of the bad things that have been done to him or her. Or find comfort in the hope that someday an opportunity will come to settle the score. God's love longs to win the lost and heal the broken. So its concern is to see that that person's life change rather than waiting to get even with them. You will hear when people get offended and they get hurt, they begin to build a list. Well, now, you know what they did now? Yeah, sure. 
This, I mean, this just happened. And they keep a running list of the offenses. It builds. One person called it gunny sacking. You know, the idea that you have this sack on your shoulder of all these offenses, and every so often you take it down and you open it up and go, let me, let me show you what they did. You know, they did that. They did that. This is particularly bad. Wait till you see this. <laughs> and, and they just kind of look in their sack. They, keep, they carry that thing around. But Paul says, forgetting what lies behind I strive to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of in Christ Jesus. Turning around. There, there is in Christ. Now, let me say this pastorally. And I, I, I believe this. I, I've done it. There are things in your life and mine where there have been wounds and issues that have to be attended to. I know that. There are, there are things that you want to go past, but they won't. You know, there's been a wound in you that has to get addressed. And I, I'm not, so I'm not against healing and ministering to those things. But... Our focus does turn, as a Christian, from the past to the future. And that shift has to get made. I mean, it's one thing to attend to things, but if I stay here on the past, I I go sour. It takes me down, and I become a victim and a cripple uh, emotionally the rest of my life. The focus has to go up. Attend to those, and then move on. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. A person, uh, why don't you say that? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. A person with love is never happy to hear that another person has done something foolish or fallen morally. He or she won't laugh when they hear another has stumbled or enjoy telling others about the ungodly things that were done. Look, we, you, know, you have these kinds of exposés of people's failures, of, of, of political leaders or pastors or who knows what, uh, or people you know who, who are doing awful things. If, you've, if, if somebody laughs about it, if somebody uh, almost like, yeah, here's another thing, and they almost enjoy watching that person collapse, that is not love. That is not God's love. God's love grieves when people blow it. It, it, it grieves over it. Instead, love rejoices with the truth. Would you say that? It longs to see people do what pleases God. So that every possible person will go to heaven and be rewarded by Christ for their faithfulness. The truth that causes love to rejoice is people obeying God's word. It rejoices in knowing that God rejoices when people draw closer to him. You know, we can forget that some of the political figures that we see, some of the, the, uh, the celebrities in the, in the, you know, these people with all this money or all this adulation and this kind of thing. Sometimes I found myself, uh, you know, just sort of dismissing them or sort of despising their influence. And I've had the Holy Spirit say to me, That's a human being. It's not a celebrity. That's a human being. And and then I'm old enough to have watched some of these celebrities then die or come to sad ends. I'll tell you, I could go down a little list where I kick myself and I think, I should have at least tried to write a letter or something. I sat back and clucked my tongue and went, look at how awful that is. And then they come to this crashing end. And I think, that's sad. They needed, they needed the Lord. The, the love opens our eyes and makes us look past the celebrity, the political, the, 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 the whatever that is, and see that there's a human being there. And that's important for us. It, it depoliticizes us. I mean, we care about people. We, we live, a, we play a different game entirely. We have a different score. We're not about... This we're about a kingdom. We're about people coming to the Lord. That's that's our assignment. It changes us. Verse seven. Next, love bears all things. Would you say that? The word Paul uses here actually means to cover something by putting a roof over it. And I think what Paul is saying is that when love sees unrighteousness, because he's just mentioned that. When love sees unrighteousness, it seeks to cover that person's sin 
by not exposing it to those who don't need to know. Sometimes people need to know. In a sense, it protects that person from being publicly shamed. And then I give you a little reference there. It's Genesis 9. It, you, you, I think you know the story. Uh, Noah, uh, after the flood, planted a vineyard, uh, made wine, got drunk, and was lying naked in his tent. Now, that's, it's a shameful moment. It's an, apparently, he got stinking drunk. And there with his clothes off and lying on the tent, one of, the, one of his sons went in, saw him in that condition, and then came out and talked to the others about it. Talked, probably laughed, probably ridiculed the stupidity. His, you know, the old man's in there drunk and naked. Two of the brothers went, and it says they, they backed into the tent. They took a cloak. And they backed into the tent so they would not look on their father's shame and laid the cloak over him and walked out without looking. In other words, they honored him. They loved him even in his foolish weakness. Uh, love covers. Love covers. Uh, even when people are unrighteous. Yes, there's people that have to know. There's people that have to get talked to. Uh, when people do stuff, you gotta, there's, there's a circle of people that have to know. But that's different than gossiping. That's different than praying, you know, prayer requests spread all over the countryside. Think, Let me tell you what they did. You know, there, there, there's, a, there's a restraint that love causes. I'm not going to say anything about this person or shame them in any way. I don't, you know, if it has to, I have to say something, I will. But I, I love them and I don't want them embarrassed. Love believes all things. Would you say that? Because love longs to help those in need, it aggressively lays hold of God's promises. It seeks to grow in faith in order to release healing and drive back demonic attack. It believes everything the Bible says about God loving the lost, forgiving the repentant, and providing eternal life. So it fights for the beloved by laying hold of God's promises on their behalf. Do you hear this? Love believes all things. What do you mean? You've got the beloved. You're believing God for his promises for that person. And sometimes that'll take 40 years. It just will. And you just stand believing. You stand believing the promises. You keep fighting. And you, you be surprised how many battles you win. Next, love hopes all things. Would you say that? Biblical hope is the confidence that good things will happen because God's at work in the situation. Since agape love flows out of the realization of all God has done for us, it keeps a person optimistic that sooner or later God will transform the beloved's heart as well. In other words, hope doesn't get cynical. Hope doesn't get sour and give up. It keeps the, the love drives us to trust in God will do a good thing. That God, it keeps our, our hope alive. Love keeps expecting God to win. And that hope sustains us as we pour ourselves out on behalf of others. You ever felt like a fool or had others in the family uh, think you're an idiot for hoping that that person is going to come to God? We're going to turn around. Um, that's not your fault. That's the love of God inside of you, and he makes us look like idiots. He, he kind of looks like an idiot too, doesn't he? In that he loved the world to the point that he'd give his son. That's crazy. Crazy. Somebody wrote a book, Crazy Love. It is. Hallelujah, and you're infected with it. And finally... Love endures all things. Would you say that? One would think that by loving this way, we would run out of love. But that's not the case. We soon find that there is a miraculous quality to God's love. The more love we give, the more love we have. The process expands our capacity to love. So when Paul says love endures all things, he means nothing can quench it. It doesn't die out with the passing of time, nor do we run dry when we include more people. Instead, it grows until it becomes a way of life. Think of a parent. You know, you have a child. Yes, I love my child. 
And then you have another. Well, what does that mean? Well, I, got, I love this one, so I don't, there's not much love left for this one. What happens when you have a second one? Well, there's more love. What happens when you have a third? Hang on. More love. Love expands. In fact, if you, the only way you shrink love is by, is by loving less. If you try to protect your love, uh, and, and there's a whole bunch of people, I've, I've heard this even not long, where they say, you know, uh, I'm just love, uh, my, the only people I'm, uh, I love is, my, is blood, you know, I love my family. Well, that's great. Uh, and then not all, all of them. <laughs> and what you find is people who do that, they don't really love anybody much at all. Love doesn't work like that. It's got to get used. It's got to get stretched. I've seen people who, who think, uh, who get all, family members who get all upset when there's an adoption. Like, you're, not, you're not bringing that child into my family. Oh, that's wonderful. How wide will our arms go? How, when's it enough? How many people will you let into your heart and keep loving? You'd be just surprised if you say, come on, come on in. Let's love some more. Let's have that child. Let's have that family. Let's, let's open our arms and begin to love more like that. You won't run out of love. It endures. You'll just, it'll change you though. It'll just make you more loving and a deeper person. The source of love. When we come to the end of Paul's description of what love does... It would be hard for anyone to say that the love he pictures isn't absolutely wonderful. Who wouldn't want to be loved like that? And who wouldn't want to love others that way? But this type of love isn't commonly found in the human heart. So it feels like a distant ideal that we would all like to reach for, but would never expect to achieve. And apart from a miracle, I think agape love is only a distant ideal. Yet Paul did expect it. He wrote these words because he wanted us to love like that. So what is the source of such love? Because it's not normally found in humans. And that question brings us back to the Holy Spirit. Here's a simple definition of God's kind of love. It's the decision to do whatever it takes to save someone. Would you say that? To do whatever it takes to save someone. The Bible tells us that was, it, was, it was his love that led God to make the decision to do what had to be done to bring as many people to heaven as possible. Jesus explained it this way. Would you read this with me? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In other words, his love produced the decision to send his son to the cross. And I believe that statement points to the source that enables us to love that way as well. Paul has shown us today that there is a dimension of love that is far more selfless and long-lasting than anything the human heart can produce by itself. He's describing a dimension of love that can only be based on a miracle. It's a gift God places by the Holy Spirit. See, when you receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, you have God in you. He literally comes himself inside us. It's into the human heart. He places, it's a gift God places by the Holy Spirit into the human heart. You might say he takes a portion of his own love and puts it inside of us. And as you would expect, that love makes us do things we would never do without it. God puts his heart in you. He doesn't ask the human heart and say, here, come on, try harder, be nicer. Stop being such a crappy guy. He puts his heart inside us. The closest thing to, to God's love that the human heart can produce by itself is what we might call heroic love. In certain situations, something inside some people will literally choose to lay down their life to protect others. 
We see this with soldiers in battle protecting a comrade. Police defending the innocent. Firefighters rescuing the helpless. Or a parent defending a child in danger. And it's very beautiful when it happens. So we naturally honor it because in that moment, that heroic love is a picture of God saving us. But when God places his love inside someone, heroic love can become a lifestyle. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised that after his, love, his son died and rose again from the dead, he would miraculously transform the heart of those who received the new covenant. Listen, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. As you can see, God was promising to do something new, something humans couldn't produce by their own efforts, something so radical it would be like taking out a dead, stony heart and putting in a warm, living heart. And unless we understand this miracle, we won't understand what Paul is saying. We'll think he's describing an unreachable ideal, a distant goal to be admired, but never achieved. But he's not. He is describing the love that Jesus, that, pardon me, that sent Jesus to save us. And the love that chose the cross. And the love that is already present inside of you and me. Did you hear that? We're not asking him to give us something. He's already given that love to us. He's already, it's already inside of you and me. If through Jesus we have become children of God. And if we're children, then he has put a portion of his own heart within us. So we can decide to love like he loves. You, you and I can just, we can just step into what's already been imparted to us. That's what makes us such a fearsome force. When we begin to walk in this kind of love, who can resist it? Who can resist the person that prays for you and stands and loves and walks, walks their life out in front of you and won't give up on you? Now, we have a free will, but man, that's a hard force to resist. See, what they're not waiting for is, is us to talk at them. But boy, when you start loving them, and then the opportunities come to share Jesus. It just, it's a, it's, look, they, they were, they were, the, the Christianity, the reason governments persecute it, the reason it's hammered, the reason they throw us in jail, we, for, I mean, have been for a time, this is a dangerous force. You take people with this faith and this kind of love and you stick them anywhere and they, that, that stuff spreads. Hallelujah. We got the disease. We're the dangerous influence. This is why, like, when you come to Halloween, we're not afraid. What we, the disease we got is way bigger than what you got. You, you stick us in trouble, in a, in a troubled situation. We, we spread out. We win the world. And this love of God is a key to it. It's not a remote goal. It's an immediate possibility. It is not a vague ideal. It's what we promised Jesus we would do when we took up our cross to follow him. I've had some, I had a, a, a brother talk to me a while back and, and he said, you know, I, he said, I love God, but I just have a hard time loving people. And I know that's wounding talking. It's all kinds of wounding and self-esteem talking. It's all sorts of things. I, 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 I totally understand that. Here's what he needed to know. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. God's already put his love inside you. you. You can't say, I can't love. Yeah, you can. You may be wounded. You may have had betrayals. You may have had people. You may be, there may be a, a, an emotional side of things that needs care. That's true. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, he's, you have a new heart. You just do. 
He didn't ask. He changed it without your permission. Well, it was your permission, wasn't it? When you said, I make you Lord, he said, I'll take that. Sign right here. And he just came in like he owned the place. Took out the old stone, sticks in a living, warm heart. Fills it, puts his dear Holy Spirit inside you to empower you. And then he teaches you how to walk in that. He doesn't reward you with those things after you've learned. He gives those things to you so we can learn. Without them, we wouldn't learn. And so we're learning to lay hold of what's ours. Of walking in who we are as children of God now. So Lord God, we stand before you. And we, we don't ask you for love. We thank you for it. If there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ, by surrendering to him as your Lord and by embracing the cross as your, that he died for you and paid for your sins, he will give you Jesus. He will give you the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you forever. And so, Lord, we, we, we bless you for the heart that you've put in us. And we thank you that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we can love. We can, we can, we can see you move in the hardest, most difficult, most broken situations. You have given us a love that won't let go. You've given us a tenacity and an endurance that we believe all things, every promise. We hope all things, every good thing you have in store. And we thank you that our love will not wear out, for it's a divine, miraculous gift. Blessed be the Lord who fills us with his love. Would you, would you say that? Blessed be the Lord who fills us with his love. Why don't, why don't you just say this? I'm a child of God. He has taken out my stony heart. And put in a living heart. I am full of the Spirit of God. I am full of the love of God. And I gladly walk in that love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.